and uh, took in the early showing of a new movie called Rosemary's Baby. So as I was walking out of the theater, a, uh, a large black hearse drove up to the front of it, and uh, a very uh, Svengali-looking gentleman with a bald head and a goatee swept in and dressed all in black, uh, surrounded by an entourage of similarly dressed uh, acolytes or whatever. And I went over to the theater manager and I said, what in the world was that? And he said, well, that was Anton LaVey. He's the high priest of the Church of Satan here in San Francisco. And I said, well, no kidding. Welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Demonosophy 2.0 with your host, Paul Frederick. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to Demonosophy 2.0. With us today is a very special guest. He's a retired Lieutenant Colonel, Psychological Operations, U.S. Army. He's a graduate of the Industrial College of the Armed Forces, National Defense University, Defense Intelligence College, Defense Intelligence Agency, Foreign Service Institute, Department of State, U.S. Army Special Warfare Center, Special Forces, Green Beret, Psychological Operations, Civil Affairs, Foreign Area Officer, U.S. Army Command and General Staff College, U.S. Army Intelligence School at U.S. Army Space Institute. He's a Ph.D. in political science from the University of California, Santa Barbara. And since 1975, he's been a priest of the ancient Egyptian god Set and served as high priest of the International Temple of Set until 1996. He's a decorated war hero who fought for freedom in the Vietnam War and he continues to fight for freedom today in the spiritual realm with his authorship of numerous books on political, military, and initiatory subjects. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Dr. Michael A. Aquino. Welcome to the show, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for the kind uh, uh, recitation of my uh, all the exhausting things that have uh, seemed to accumulate over the years in my past. Absolutely. I just can't express what an honor it is to have you on the show. Um, I remember first really becoming aware of your work, seeing, uh, seeing you on the Oprah Winfrey show and Geraldo back in the 80s. And just that experience for me, and I know this is true for a lot of other people, opened up a, a much larger universe um, and, and continues to do so to this day. Well, it's nice to hear that. Uh, actually, I'm... I'm a rather private person. I'm not really uh, one of those who runs after media seeking exposure. And until the 1980s and that unhappy uh, episode of uh, the satanic panic, I generally declined all interviews and uh, public appearances at that time since I was the uh, chief executive of the Temple of Set. It was necessary to 
uh, come out, uh, take a public uh, stance and speak to the issues that were then ongoing. And once the panic had subsided at the end of the 80s, I sort of retreated back up into my rock, uh, you know, like a good iguana lizard, but every now and then poke my head out when there seems to be uh, something useful to say. And in the last year or so, that has been driven by a book of mine called Mind War, which was uh, a proposal of a new approach to settling international conflicts that don't involve shooting people or blowing them up. So that seemed to be an important enough reason to uh, make a presentation of it as a book and then also to get out and uh, talk about it with people occasionally. Absolutely. I know you've been writing a lot these days. And um, in addition to Mind War, I know you've had Fine Far come out recently and Ode to Esme, the memoirs of Captain Nemo. And we definitely want to talk more about that. But first, I'd like to charge up the TARDIS for just a moment, go back in time to that magical time known as the 60s. So these days, we hear a lot from people who call themselves Satanists, claiming that Satanism is really just atheism. And on the other hand, a lot of the ideas that have grown out of the Temple of Set seem to contradict that notion of atheistic Satanism. So going back to your own experience in the old Church of Satan, when did you first get a sense that there might be something more to this idea of the uh, Prince of Darkness? Well, as a child, um, my father was a nominal Roman Catholic. My mother was a Swedenborgian, which is a sort of a uh, somewhat esoteric branch of Christianity, not so much because she was intensely Christian, but because uh, she decided to get married to my father and uh, needed a nice church to get married in, and the Swedenborgian Church in San Francisco is a particularly beautiful institution, so that seemed good enough reason for her. So in due course, I came along, and my parents uh, duly uh, shuttled me around to a few Sunday schools to see if any of them would interest me. Uh, none of them did, so I reached my adolescence uh, somewhat bemusedly as far as religion was concerned, putting it in pretty much the same classification as Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, and the Tooth Fairy, meaning um, interesting fairy tales, but nothing that uh, would cause me to um, get down on my knees and face any direction to pray to anything at any time. So I didn't come to the experience of the Church of Satan with a chip on my shoulder, or with a bad experience that I felt that I had to redress in any sense. If I uh, were to give myself a label prior to that, I would probably have called myself an existentialist, uh, meaning a, a person in the sense of um, being a sort of a free thought individual that rejects uh, any kind of a, an institutional lockstep dogmatism one way or the other. And existentialism was a sort of an intellectual fad, you might say, after World War II, which was sort of tired out from all the isms. It was tired of fascism. It was tired of communism. It was tired from aggressive, aggressive socialism. And uh, it spawned movements such as the beat generation of the 50s. And without going to coffee houses and drinking espresso and uh, smoking pot, I would say I, I fell generally into that mold. And then in uh, 1968, I uh, had just graduated from the University of California with a bachelor's degree, 
was uh, and a commission in the Army and was about to go to my first assignment with the 82nd Airborne Division and do something stupid like jump out of airplanes. <laughs> but before that, uh, I stopped down here in the Marine in San Francisco and uh, took in the early showing of a new movie called Rosemary's Baby. And as I was coming out of it, uh, and, and Rosemary's Baby, of course, is the story of some perfectly normal uh, next-door neighbor people in New York City who turn out to be uh, devil worshippers practicing black magic. Uh, very nice people, but, you know, it turned out to be a little strange, you might say, and the movie wound up um, with that as a punchline. So as I was walking out of the theater, a, uh, a large black hearse drove up to the front of it, and uh, a very uh, Svengali-looking gentleman with a bald head and a goatee swept in and dressed all in black uh, surrounded by an entourage of similarly dressed uh, acolytes or whatever and I went over to the theater manager and I said what in the world was that and he said well that was Anton LaVey he's the high priest of the Church of Satan here in San Francisco and I said well no kidding you know so the theater manager gave me one of Anton's cards, and uh, out of curiosity, I drove out to 6114 California Street, which was a little black house out in the uh, uh, Sunset District, and uh, it was all shuttered and closed up and said, uh, do not ring the doorbell unless you have an appointment, which I didn't, you know, so I went away and forgot about it, you might say, for about the next year or so. Then, when I happened to be back in San Francisco to get married, I noticed that he was giving lectures, and I and my party went over to uh, attend one of the lectures, and I was um, fascinated with him as being a very sensible sort of person, not, not a uh, quack or a crank, but a very thoughtful um, and realistic individual who was not only motivated by an interest in in what you might call occultism in the in the usual sense of the term, mm-hmm. but also had a very strong uh, commitment to anti-hypocrisy. And his social message was that he looked at society of the time, and particularly the religious institutions, as being very hypocritical, very self-serving, and basically damaging. And I was um, uh, interested in both those approaches. Um, Remember, this was the 1960s. This was the time of the Haight-Ashbury and the free speech movements and and a certain amount of rebellion against hypocrisy in society generally. So Mm -hmm. he was what you might call the occult leading edge of that kind of movement. And I decided that I was interested enough to join and see what it was all about, and I did. So what I found out was that the uh, ceremonial systems of the Church of Satan, which involved rituals to Satan and uh, his assortment of demons, had a very peculiar effect in magnifying one's consciousness Uh, taking a ritual chamber, a room that was constructed and decorated for that purpose, and changing its atmosphere in a very odd sort of way that I'd never experienced, for example, when visiting a Christian church or a uh, Jewish synagogue or 
a Mormon temple or anything like that. They all seemed rather dead institutions that were putting on pageants of one sort or another. This was very electrifying and very alive, and I had a definite sense of a, for, for lack of what, uh, what I might uh, otherwise characterize as a two-way conversation, not just simply a one-way expression. I was reaching out and touching something, and I wasn't quite sure what that something was, whether it was a traditional devil or something which had been simply perceived as a devil, but it had it had to do with an, a magnification of all of my senses and a much greater awareness of of my position via v that which was not me and this not only um, attracted me but a number of other people who joined the Church of Satan in those early days in the sixties and again, we spent the better part of that decade from 1966 to 75 trying to figure out, you might say, exactly what this phenomenon was that we seem to have tapped into. Because uh, reading something like, say, Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible really doesn't do it for you any more than reading the narrative of a Shakespeare play mm-hmm. uh, conveys Shakespeare to you. You have to actualize this. You know, you have to you have to sincerely enter into a ritual environment to create one and then to act um, actively within it to understand what this is all about. And indeed, the Satanic Bible was dashed off in a short time in 1969 by Anton as a sort of a initiatory or initial primer, you might say, as to um, how to start, you know, sort of a training wheels on a bicycle kind of thing, but it was not really meant to be a definitive treatise. It was, here's how, to, here's how to jump into the swimming pool, so to speak. So in, uh, in those first 10 years, the Church of Satan became, it, it immediately became, um, had very little to do with anti-Christianity or anti-Judaism in any sense. It wasn't anti-anything. Uh, if anything, it poked some fun at conventional religions and occasionally held their feet to the fire where they were doing uh, damaging things uh, socially. Mm-hmm. But we didn't have a chip on our shoulder. We didn't go around, um, as in horror movies, you know, looking for uh, Christian institutions or people to corrupt or upset or otherwise bug. You know, we minded our own business because we were involved in an exploration adventure which was much more important to us than worrying about whether somebody else uh, was going through this or that pageant one way or the other. And indeed, along the way, uh, I and many other of the old Satanists uh, had quite a few conversational contacts with people in conventional religions. I remember Father John Nicola, who was one of the uh, Catholic advisors to the um, Exorcist movie, Uh, from the cathedral in Washington, D.C. I talked with him a few times, and I remember saying, well, couldn't you come up with some snappier lines than uh, your mother sucks cocks in hell, (laughs) Karis? And he said, well, I suppose so, but that's what what I was told to come up with. And I said, well, that's when you should have called me or called Anton. I'm sure we could have done a little better than that. (laughs) 
Anyway, that's how come you got those sorts of lines in The Exorcist and uh, not a little more class in the show. <laughs> so uh, the Church of Satan went along in a, in a sincere, positive, and very good-humored way for that decade, but we began bumping our nose up against the limits of the iconography of Judeo-Christianity because any way you looked at it, we were using... Uh, Satan and the other Judeo-Christian demons and representing gods from other cultures as sort of Judeo-Christian demons and looking out through um, the lens into reality with that somewhat negative, spooky Boris Karloff, uh, Bela Lugosi uh, atmosphere, which is is fun for a while, but it, it's limiting and it has a certain negative connotation that, well, after all is said and done, you're the bad guys, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, in 1975, we had really reached the limits of that, and as it happened, there was also a crisis in the Church of Satan at the same time because Anton LaVey, for whatever his unfortunate reasons, decided that he was simply not, um, I guess, making enough money from it to survive and decided to turn it into more of a business and a financial vehicle, including making the satanic priesthood available for cash contributions, which was a complete reversal from the initiatory and skill-only criteria which had applied up until then. And to make a long story short, the priesthood said no, and we all resigned en masse. Anton kept a... uh, uh, a group of, of fan followers uh, and perpetuated the institution and it remains that kind of a business today after his death in which um, it basically sells membership cards and, and cocktail party notoriety but doesn't uh, go much beyond that. At the same time, um, we, meaning myself and the other w- would-be founders of the Temple of Set, went back into what we had learned in, uh, you might say, the earliest manifestations of human intellectual history, which took us to ancient Egypt, and that became the uh, lens, the much larger lens, through which we proceeded to uh, continue on our adventure. And the what you might call the fulcrum of that was a magical working uh, of my own on June the 21st, 22nd of 1975, known as the North North Solstice working uh, involving the Netcher Set, who is the Egyptian principle of the isolate self-consciousness. In short, the, what you might call the platonic form of each and every one of us as an independent and differentiated uh, focus of, of uh, separate consciousness. You might say sort of the master energy source that is particularized in each and every one of us. That generated the Temple of Set. And the Temple of Set has been very much an open-ended adventure uh, since then. Uh, I would say if the, if the Church of Satan opened this door about 10%, then we've opened it about 1,000% since then. Uh, We've had thousands and thousands of people uh, come through the Temple of Set uh, since 1975. 
Some have remained with it, finding it a good metaphor. Some have used it for a time and then gone off on their own separate uh, adventures and quests. All of this is fine with us. We regard it as a kind of a personal toolbox to help people figure out who and what they are and how they can best expand and explore themselves. And uh, in the process, of course, we're sort of a collective uh, compare and contrast forum, you might say, uh, where you can meet other people involved in the same kind of adventure. Swap stories, methods, uh, bumped noses, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so to speak. And it's been uh, a very friendly and very positive and very useful environment. And this uh, obviously pleases me a good deal because uh, I don't like institutions that either become um, focused on hero worship of some individual, um, which happened, for example, to the Lester Crowley institutions, uh, and I don't like institutions that become bureaucratically oriented so that they perpetuate themselves for their own business purposes rather than stay true to an initial idea. And so far, the Temple of Set has uh, very nicely steered clear of those kinds of dangers and is just as friendly and frisky today as it was in 1975, except that it's obviously much bigger. (laughs) (laughs) So that brings us up to the present. I I was the high priest of Set um, from 1975 to uh, 1981, and I turned it over to Ronald K. Barrett for a while. And then uh, after... A few years, uh, I came back into it uh, and stayed in that office throughout the uh, nasty 1980s, you might say, when this um, satanic panic danger was underway, and I was pretty much the best person to deal with it as far as representing the temple was concerned. And pretty much as soon as that was over with, um, I turned, I retired for a second time, uh, turned the office in 1996 over to uh, Ipsissimus Don Webb, and there have been um, uh, two high priests, high priestesses since that time. So not only is it not a personality cult of any sort, but it is surviving very well with the idea of uh, you know periodic changes of administrative style and. Uh, different personalities uh, uh, guiding it. So all in all, I'm, I'm wagging my tail, you know, where the Temple of Set is concerned. I think it's a nice institution doing a nice thing for nice people. Uh, what's not to like? Yeah, absolutely. So um, another really significant thing that I think um, come, goes back to the early days of the Church of Satan that has maintained coherence and relevance up into the present day is a book called The Diabolicon. And I understand there's some interesting circumstances about how this book came into being. Could you talk about that for a little bit? Sure. Um, when I had, I, again, I joined the Church of Satan in 1969, and I'd had a, a sort of a uh, casual interest in black magic and Satanism before then, reading some of the old classics and novels, whether it was Montague Summers or Dennis Sweetly or um, some of the classicists, you know, like uh, Blake and, uh, uh, in this case, John Milton, who wrote the 
um, the great epic poem Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost being the story of the angelic revolt in which Satan, uh, or Lucifer as he was then called, revolted with some of the angels against God, um, had a battle, lost, got tossed down into hell, and uh, put it together as a new concept and also became involved with humanity to the extent of bumping into Adam, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Well, I was impressed with Milton's Paradise Lost, but uh, I didn't like the, the uh, inevitable tone of it. Again, as I mentioned a little earlier, one of the problems with satanic imagery was the fact that Satan was sort of set up to be the bad guy, the fall guy, so he couldn't win. It was like uh, being Hamilton Berger, you know, on, on the old Perry Mason series, you know, um, uh, you might be there, but you never won a case against, you never won a case against Perry Mason. So uh, when I was spending uh, some time in Southeast Asia at that time in, uh, in South Vietnam uh, and had a little extra time on my hands, I began roughing out what I thought was um, a sort of um, counterpunch or alternative uh, interpretation of the events of Paradise Lost as might have been seen through the eyes of Satan and his principal demon assistants. And this manuscript um, took me, I say, about, I recall it was somewhere in the neighborhood of four or five months from um, late 1969 to about um, early to mid-1970. And it was divided into several chapters or books, the second of which uh, I think the book of Beelzebub uh, was blown to bits in the, with the first draft by an inconvenient North Vietnamese rocket. Very interesting. Fortunately, I wasn't there at the time uh, where it was stashed, so I had to reconstruct that, so I assumed that uh, Beelzebub didn't like the initial version of that chapter. <laughs> In any case, uh, I completed this manuscript by, I would say, somewhere around April of 1970, uh, sent it off to Anton LaVey in San Francisco as the Diabolican, and uh, he received it, sent me an appreciative note saying that he was very impressed that it would become an official document of the church, and it did uh, thereafter become one of the centerpieces of what you might call the more uh, formalized, uh, the more elegant representations of satanic doctrine after that um, during the life of the church. So it was a statement not just of the existence of Satan and how he perceived himself, but also of his relationship to humanity, which had to do with the conveyance of what therein was referred to as the black flame, what, what uh, in later years we would refer to as the gift of set, being mm -hmm. the uh, conveyance of self-awareness to a, an animal being uh, on earth called humanity that would become aware of itself as uh, something outside of the natural order of things with the discretion to um, act upon the natural order of things. And it is this separateness that was Satan's sin, quote-unquote. It had nothing to do with what you might call common notions of good and evil, it simply had to do with the fact that he wasn't in the same court, he wasn't in the same ballpark 
as God and the and the dictated order of the universe. He saw things from a different perspective, from outside of that uh, uh, you know limitation, and that is also, of course, the plight that humanity finds itself in and which accounts for humanity's neurosis since then and of course not just among Setians but among humanity humanity generally as to how to deal with the fact that it is an outside actor uh, against a very large uh, inert objective universe mm-hmm. and the you know the, so that's sort of the, the short version of <laughs> the diabolicon <laughs> It was an initial statement of this that was, that was a formalization, sort of a response to John Milton from the other side of the fence, and um, and that's what it was. Uh, it, it wasn't modified in any way since then. It was just simply a one-time-through document, and has yes stood the test of time very well within the metaphor of uh, Judeo-Christian iconography. Absolutely. And so one of those core ideas that you mentioned in the Diabolicon is the black flame. And I think that's one of those that that meme has like really uh, survived for quite a long time and it continues to be relevant. And, you know, and, and of course, there's a lot of symbolism tied up in that. Now, when I was reading, I think it was Mind War. Maybe it was Mindstar. No, it was Mindwar. You were talking about fields a lot in that book mm-hmm. and different types of fields. And it occurred to me, well, you know, in the Diabolicon, the black flame kind of behaves like a field, the way it you know, envelops the earth and moves around and it has this effect on things. Very um, much so. Is, yeah. I would say, I mean, you're, you've hit the nail on the head uh, in the sense that most people, if you, if you walk up to somebody and you say, well, where is your consciousness located? First of all, they'll have a rough time trying to figure out what consciousness is. Mm-hmm. If you ask them to define it, they'll flub around and, and uh, really won't know. And then if you try to locate it, they'll say, well, it's somewhere behind my eyeballs. You know, it's kind of in my head. It's, it's a function of my brain. And if you run into a... A physical scientist will say, oh, this is nothing more than an illusion caused by the interaction of, you know, billions of brain cells that, that create a sort of a, um, an imagination of a, of a personality, but that doesn't really exist outside of that mechanical process. Well, when you really get into uh, an exploration of this and you go beyond these, these pat answers, what you find is that First of all, um, life itself is a field phenomenon, and what this <laughs> this takes several pages, you know. So I'll try and knock it down into a couple of quick paragraphs here. But any kind of a physical phenomenon, uh, whether it's matter or energy, requires an external organizing force or principle, something that defines it and puts it together. Let's say that you cut your arm, and a couple of days from now, your arm is healed up and looks just like it was before you were clumsy with a knife. How does your arm know how to rebuild those cells and molecules to look exactly like they were before? Why don't you have a miniature giraffe growing on your arm? 
or a piece of rock or a tentacle, you know, or something like that, how does it know to reconstruct exactly what it was? Um, in some animals, this is much more thorough. You know, you chop a tail off a salamander, it grows a complete new tail. And to some extent, the human body repairs itself identically the way it was before. And in some instances, it's just too much, you know, for it to handle because its, it's surrounding electromagnetic field, you know, isn't that intensive. So if you chop an arm off, unfortunately, your field isn't going to be strong enough to grow you a new arm. Although, as many people who've lost an arm will testify, they have a feeling that they have a sort of a ghost arm for a while, while the field is still there that define the arm, even though there's nothing there. So, uh, in any kind of uh, a three-dimensional objective universe situation, which is an object or a force that occupies dimensional space, uh, you have, you have the necessity for something external to it that organizes it and defines it. And that is also applicable to, not just to the physical human body, but to the phenomenon of consciousness as well. There was um, a famous uh, book by, I believe it was a Princeton um, MD, Harold uh, Saxton Burr, who discussed the phenomenon of life fields. And uh, a short time after that, um, another uh, philosopher came along and applied this to the phenomenon of thought. And he said, well, thought also has the characteristic of a field. Giving you a very simple illustration, somewhere in the second grade or whatever, you learned that two plus two equals four. You learned the principles of, of mathematics, multiplication, and so on. Well, your brain cells, uh, die and reproduce themselves uh, maybe about once every six months in totality. So your entire body, including your brain, is not the same thing that it was even six months ago, much less in your childhood. And you would think that along the way, if uh, all these cells and, and molecular constructions and synaptic uh, arrangements are dying and being replaced, that you would lose uh, this kind of um, accumulated identity for it, including, of course, the very large identity of yourself as, a, as an entity. Uh, one of the early masters of the Temple of Set, Robert Moffat, um, when he was uh, asked to explain personal life, he said, well, it's a a few thousand billion cells that have uh, just somehow decided to be you for a while. <laughs> and, and he has sort of a point, you know, that there is, a, there is a field phenomenon, a sort of an overreaching master plan, you might say, um, which is probably a function of the electromagnetic spectrum because when we, definitely the life field is, we assume that uh, until we have something better to refer to, that the thought fields are probably electromagnetic spectrum-based too. But um, this goes beyond the length of a phone call. Again, this is the, this is the um, substance of books like Mindstar. And mm -hmm. has to do also, of, of course, with the idea that you continue to... Um, you not only 
remember these things past the disintegration and reconstruction of, of physical brain cells, but the whole phenomenon of your identity and memory is much more instantaneous and accessible than you would think it would be in a sort of a digital memory fashion. If I were to tell you now, do you remember what your third grade classroom looked like? Well, you can pop up that image in your brain instantly. You don't have to go searching for it. Bang, the whole thing is right there. You can really call up your entire life uh, through this instantaneous access. And that's where consciousness is different from something like a desktop computer where you have to go looking for things. And uh, you, don't need, you don't need Google you know, to go back uh, uh, through your life and your, and your separate intelligence and consciousness. It's all right there and it's instantaneous. And you can also chop out big pieces of your brain um, as has been discovered along the way without affecting this whatever. So it isn't necessarily limited to this or that part of your brain. The brain is a little bit like an automobile with a driver in it, and it's there to uh, provide a certain mechanism for the convenience of the driver. And in this case, the driver is what I call the mind star, and what has usually been called things like the soul or the isolate self-consciousness or the demonic self, you know, in Platonic uh, lingo. So um, that is that is what we uh, were thinking about in terms of uh, euphemisms like the black flame or like the gift of set. This has to do with this awareness of separateness. In so one thing, one thing you're starting to get into here, and I think this is an idea from, I think this is in Mindstar, is the idea that consciousness precedes existence, that we must have a conscious existence before we get here. And, oh, yes. you know, this is an idea, I mean, that... Not that, only that, but it's immortal. In other words, it, it doesn't need the body any more than it pre-needs it. The body becomes a useful vehicle to uh, realize and recognize itself. So by being attached to, being positioned in a physical body, uh, you can now use that body to extend yourself in three-dimensional or four-dimensional space-time and sort of learn what the limits, your limits are within that environment as opposed to the environment itself. So if I reach out and I slam my hand into the top of my desk, I learned that, you know, the part of me that extends to my hand does not also include that desk that I just slammed my hand into. But this is all a very artificial and very limiting thing because the, the mistake that many people make, that people usually make, is to say, well, therefore I am only my physical body because that's the part of me that I bang into things with, you might say. Actually, you find that if you remove um, the device of the physical senses, your consciousness not only continues to exist, but gets much bigger. And this is the, um, this is the adventure, for example, that experimenters like John Lilly uh, got into in the 60s and 70s when he was doing his work with isolation tanks. He was essentially removing uh, 
human physical senses from the consciousness to see what was left after they were all neutralized and he found that things got much bigger essentially you became you expanded into becoming a sort of a universal god yourself once you were not trapped into self-limiting yourself with uh, physical inputs from a physical body so you can take a look at for example a movie like altered states which was a um you might say a parody or a um uh, a takeoff on the work of John Lilly. Oh, great movie! This, yes, and see this, see this represented. That uh, as soon as you start turning the mind, the, the consciousness in on itself, it gets much bigger and uh, much more unbounded. You might say, uh, much more limitless. You know than it is if you just simply limit yourself to the prison of your material senses. In this book that I came up with uh, fairly recently as a sort of a sequel to Mind War called Find Far, I get very much into, the, in, into straightening out people's notion of dimensions. Because this, again, is a subject that most people are pretty, um, pretty silly about. I guess that's the kindest word that I can say. It sounds better than stupid, you know. But in any case... <laughs> We, we have a lot of people who get all worked up about the third, three dimensions, the fourth dimension, and so on. And I said, look, there's nothing complicated about this at all. You have an objective universe out there, you know, that is not you, that is everything physical around you that you are aware of. And every object and every force in it, into it displaces three dimensions. And within those three dimensions, uh, of existence, nothing besides itself can physically exist because it displaces those. Now you may have a, a force and a physical object that um, overlap one another in a particular three-dimensional space, and that's fine, but they themselves are all separate things. And when you talk about the fourth dimension of time, there's nothing at all weird about that because all it is and it's really very simple, is when you have a bunch of three-dimensional objects and any one of them moves relative to another one, that measurement of movement is called time. So if I have a red ball and a blue ball and they're sitting stationary with regard to each other, time does not exist. The minute that you move one away from another, uh, that measurement of its displacement from the other uh, is called time. So you have an objective universe, a physical universe, that consists of four dimensions because the universe not only exists as a bunch of three-dimensional things, but it's moving internally all the time, so therefore time exists as you measure the changes between one object and another object or the aging of one object within itself or any other kind of movement within those three dimensions. Yeah, we measure it. We measure it by movement. Yes, uh, yes. You know, the movement, sun, sun moves around. This fourth dimension. So there's nothing yeah. peculiar about time. It's just simply that measurement of movement. It also means that uh, a lot of science fiction notions like time travel and things like that are just plain silly. 
because they don't have anything to do with what time actually is and how it functions. It's a function of objective, universal existence and the changes that are occurring therein, and that's all it is. Now, here's the fun part, and here's where you get into the black flame or the gift of set, and that is that to see these things, to recognize them, to, to perceive those three dimensions plus one, you need a fifth dimension. And that fifth dimension is an external point of self-aware consciousness. So Paul McAtee and Michael Aquino are fifth dimensional phenomena, V of E, those first four. We are able to perceive those three and that fourth because without our perception, they would not exist as anything meaningful. You have to have an external point of perception, and that is the, uh, the coordinate that's outside those four. So we are what you might call fifth-dimensional phenomena. And to make life more fun, of course, each one of us is a fifth dimension, each or as I refer to it in Mindstar, a subjective universe. And not only do we perceive things, but we are also able to create things within our own subjective uh, consciousness, which means that not only can we perceive the objective universe, but we can create any number of interpretations of it, variations of it, or completely different subjective universes of our own. Mm-hmm. So we are, in effect, gods, uh, having that ability not just to only to create, but to assign meaning. And that is the definition of what a god being would be, is something that can not only create something from nothing, but uh, can also assign meaning to it. Those are the two functions that determine divinity, you might say. So that's, uh, that's what we awaken SETI and initiates to, is this a power to create and power to assign meaning. So this uh, all gets back to the idea about, uh, again, uh, consciousness preceding existence. And this seems to tie in with the, the, the whole fifth dimension yes, um, aspect have, of that. Yes, because your consciousness must exist before anything that it uh, goes out there to look for or to create or to perceive. Uh, otherwise, that other thing, for all intents and purposes, does not exist. And therefore, so, your consciousness, the big task for your consciousness is to wake up to itself, which it usually does with those training wheels of having something external to bang into relative to the objective universe. You, you, one of the people who really got into this sort of thing in a big way was... Um, uh, Gurdjieff's disciple Peter Ospensky when he wrote uh, or gave a series of lectures entitled The Psychology of Man's Possible Evolution which is a wonderful mm-hmm. little book which I would suggest to your uh, audience you know that if they mm-hmm. were looking for something fascinating to pick up this is a great little alarm clock for your consciousness to show you how to wake up because that's the principal message is waking up uh, that it's all about And this is not the kind of thing that you get from any kind of conventional religion uh, at all. You have to go outside of that to initiation 
to experience this waking up of personal divinity phenomenon, or what the Egyptians referred to as kefir, the coming into being of one's divine self. That's what the Temple of Set exists to promulgate and to uh, encourage in initiates. And that is, as I said, a world uh, of difference from what you normally get in conventional religions, which have absolutely nothing to do with waking up, and they have everything to do with sadomasochism uh, and uh, obedience, and that's it. So that's a good segue, because a lot of people will like respond to this idea of consciousness preceding existence and say, well, yeah, that's... Uh uh, you know, Buddha said that, and uh, Siddhartha Gautama said that. That's like reincarnation. So no, what well, you're Buddha talking about, does that support reincarnation, or is it something different? Well, you get to, when you look at the, what you might call the Lamaistic religions, such as Buddhism and Zen, and you can even go to some of the uh, self-centered ones of the Hellenistic era, such as Hedonism and Epicureanism, and lump them in the same bag. But there you're talking about a... Um, which you might call the religion of the defeated and the helpless and the powerless. Mm -hmm. Because the attitude of all those is that existence is a, a miserable deck of cards. Conscious existence is a miserable deck of cards. And what you have to do is retreat from it as much as possible and sort of submerge it in uh, self-annihilation or anatta, you know, as the, as the Buddhists call it. So the object there is to destroy the self, not to enhance it and strengthen it and magnify it. It's a, uh, the closest you might come to it in Western culture in the 1950s was the beat movement, um, in which again there was this sense of defeated uh, self-annihilation and uh, sort of a retreat from grappling with active conscious existence uh, in that way. It was sort of the the um, opposite, you might say, extreme of the existentialist movement at that time, which was an affirmation of self-consciousness, but simply a rejection of dogmatism and organizations. So that's, you know, the, the problem with, with things like Buddhism and Taoism is not that they're bad in and of themselves, per se. I mean, they're not, um, they don't argue for bad behavior but they do argue for annihilation of yourself. They say this thing that you perceive as your consciousness is basically a bad deal, a bad thing, and you want to get rid of it, you want to submerge it, you want to annihilate it and eliminate it. And that's the only way that you can get any kind of comfort or recourse from this otherwise torturous experience of uh, conscious existence. And isn't it the same thing when people say that you need to sublimate individuality, individuality must be yoked to the collective, we serve the collective. Doesn't our individuality, that whole phenomenon springs from isolate consciousness. It's, it's well, a, people it's a been, manifestation People have been dealing that. with this phenomenon of consciousness in a number of different ways. And usually, uh, as opposed to our initiatory approach, they fear it and they don't like it and they don't know what to do with it. So they're trying to to beat it down, or the first they try to annihilate it, you know, as you see in Buddhism and Zen, um, or in Taoism. Uh, and if they can't annihilate it, then they punish it, as in uh, Judeo-Christianity. They sort of beat it down as a curse, which has to mm -hmm. be thrashed down and punished. And supposedly, 
that will please God in some way if they if they succeed in that punishment and they get on their faces and they reject it that way, which is how concepts that that anthropomorphize it like Satan are considered to be synonymous with evil because okay, this is what God hates. You know, God hates any other kind of a competition God than himself. And if you happen to have the attributes such as the power of creativity and of assignment of meaning yourself, as in the allegory of the Garden of Eden and the eating of the tree, uh, fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, well, then you deserve to be punished and uh, beaten down. So what you see in Judaism and its offshoots of both Christianity and Islam is a giant exercise in masochism where the consciousness is concerned. This thing that makes you an individual is a sin, and it has to be condemned as such and beaten down and Mm -hmm. punished throughout your entire life, and it has absolutely, you know, it has nothing to do with your um, personal commitment to being a god devotee, but just the fact that you have this thing. It's like Winston Smith in 1984 acknowledging that that without actually doing any act uh, in opposition to the party, which is the god of that metaphorical book, just the fact that he perceived that he existed as an, an actor against it was the commission of the worst possible thing, which was called thought crime. So just the perception of himself as an individual that was not simply an automatic slave to the party was thought crime, or what you'd call heresy, in, or blasphemy, you know, in Judeo-Christianity. And if you look back, and here's something else, you know, that, has, that sort of bounces off that, because people sometimes ask me, well, how can you prove the existence of the Egyptian Neteru, or the principles, these great principles of, of natural law, and it goes back to our conversation earlier of about fields, which says that for anything to exist in an organized fashion, there has to be a, a force and a concept and a blueprint external to it that organizes it and enforces it. So the fact that the objective universe exists out there and is constant throughout its entire range from moment to moment, including the physical forms you know, of Paul McAtee and Michael Aquino, and these telephones that we're talking through and everything else, that enforcement from moment to moment is the proof of something external to the objective universe that forces it to exist as it does and creates natural law. So that is the proof of the existence of the gods, if you uh, interpret it as the Egyptians did, or of God, if you'd like to lump it all together into one thing. Again, it's very easy. That is, that ha- is and has to be the definition of a universal God. Now take a look at what Judeo-Christianity does. If you look back through the Bible and through, uh, through its history, how do they find proof of the existence of God? Well, in every case, the proof has to do with an actor, meaning a, a God consciousness that comes in and violates natural law, with some miraculous act, which is essentially a violation of natural law, such as parting the Red Sea, or creating a pillar of fire, or talking out of a burning bush, or in the case of Jesus Christ, 
you know, uh, walking on water, in some way violating natural law. And all the Jews and the Christians aren't sure of the existence of God until this actor comes out and violates his own laws in one way or another. That miracle proves to them that God exists. It also, if you really want to get down to it, proves that he isn't a God because a absolute universal God does not permit any violation of natural law, period. It is the entirety of the whole thing. So if you've got somebody wandering around breaking up things, basically being a bull in a china shop and smashing this or that piece of it from time to time, that's obviously uh, an inferior force and not a universal one. It's just going around banging things up. It's a little bit like the scientists with the Manhattan Project who said, I know, let's take some stable atoms and let's hit them with a big hammer and see what happens. Bang, you get an atomic bomb. That's what happens. And that really wasn't designed to function that way in the natural universe, which is how come the entire natural universe isn't one big atomic explosion. <laughs> so you mess with Mother Nature, so to speak, or in this case, Father Nature, or, or whatever. It isn't really a sex thing. But you mess with it, and generally you break it, and bad things happen because it's designed to function um, pretty elegantly as a package deal. It's a marvelous package deal, which means that the Neturu, all of these natural forces or natural principles, or one if you want to unify them into a single capital letter G, is a pretty smart thing. They've, they've, uh, the enforcement situation, the organization and enforcement field that they put in place is pretty damn nice. And you mess with it, you know, at your own peril. It isn't a moral thing. It's a, an interactive thing that, is, that functions in a harmonious way within itself. And that, again, is one of the problems of, of Judeo-Christianity because when they punish themselves, they say, well, we're people who can bumble around and act against this objective universe in, in ways that it isn't really designed to be. So we take a tree and we cut it down and we chop it up and we can make a table or a chair out of it. Okay, that's a reasonably harmless and utilitarian um, violation of the way that nature would normally function. And that's generally not too damaging unless you look in terms of the effect on you know, large forest systems, I suppose. But uh, we still feel that somehow that's deserving of punishment, that we have that ability to, to um, bend natural law to our purposes. And if, if you're a Jew, it's an unending punishment. And every time your God shows up through one of those miracles, it's usually a bad thing, and you get beaten on the head some more for it. Even with events like the Holocaust, most of the Jews that you talk to about it, if you say, well, is your God a very just one if he allowed that to happen? Well, we must have had it coming for reasons that we can't explain, but that's just simply our lot in life because we're God's chosen people, and he dumps on us, and that's how he shows his love. Uh, okay. You know, um, Christianity represents uh, an escape valve from that by, by uh, a faction of Jews who felt that this sort of a non-ending punishment thing, including after death, was not much fun. 
So they wanted a way to get out of it. And the way they got out of it was not by anything that humans could do, but by saying, well, this same God sent his own son down to be a sacrificial lamb uh, for us and to take our sins on himself and, and, uh, and give us grace, you know, with a capital G, which is that term, which means that even if we're all screwed up and we can't possibly work ourselves or earn ourselves out of this, uh, that same God can send his own son down here to give us a get-out-of-jail-free card as long as we kiss his ass. And therefore, even though we are no better, we can still get into heaven and we won't wind up being eternally punished for being these creative things in ourselves. But usually that comes with a catchphrase, which is that you have to be born again to Jesus, you have to surrender yourself, and that means as much ritualistic denial of yourself as you can possibly squeeze into a get-on-your-knees exercise. And again, that kind of negativity, that kind of self-flagellation and punishment is exactly um, the opposite of what we look, look into as, uh, uh, as, as Egyptian uh, Neturu initiates. Absolutely. So this, this reminds me of like a Gnosticism, certain branches of Gnosticism. There's this idea that uh, Yahweh or the, the actual, the, the God that's worshipped by, uh, by uh, the, the Jews is actually, that's actually the bad God, right? Actually the evil one. Because you go through and you read through the Bible and all these instances that you've mentioned already, like the, the God of that book actually does all of the bad things. You know, he like, you know, he kills people. He like, you know, rapes women. He's mm-hmm. jealous. You know, he has like, you know, all these. Like, you, really, you know, murder your we... own son, whatever. Uh, he's, he's not a nice guy. Right. Uh, but but it all goes around in a circle because if he has this kind of license, you assume that there is. If if you want to assume that there is a bigger god around, then the bigger god is letting him get away with this kind of stuff. So the bigger god shares in that same evil, you know, that the lesser one is doing. So it doesn't, you know, even something like Gnosticism doesn't really help because you're trapped in that same prison of humanity being bad and having guilt, you know, for its consciousness. Whereas in the case of the Egyptians, you don't have any of that whatever. As a matter of fact, the Egyptian pharaoh was one of the natural. He was the current... Uh, personification on earth of one of the Neturu. He was a god king and his whole job was to be the interface between the Egyptian people and the gods. So it was a cooperative friendly relationship uh, that had to do with harmonizing one's uh, physical conduct with the physical forces of natural law. And you don't find any of that uh, self-punishment or self-abasement there whatever. This is something that came along, as I said, with the Jews and with um, later on with Islam and Christianity. And you see it going on with a rage today, you know, in all these violent, um, religiously based uh, hate wars and and, uh, hate-based conflicts that are going on. Absolutely. So that's, I, I have to say, that's one thing that appealed to me about uh, the Temple of Set is that on the one hand, it's a very 
modern, very current, sort of forward-thinking sort of uh, collection of ideas. But at the same time, it's reaching backwards. It's reaching so far back in history that it's, it, it's getting to the point where things start to trail off and we start to lose a really uh, strong grasp on history because we're getting back to the point where records that existed have been, you know, destroyed or perverted by um, various other movements that have come in since then. Well, and we don't hate anybody either. I mean, we don't feel that we have to either beat ourselves up or that we have to prove ourselves to some kind of a god by beating other people up. This is just not a, uh, a, a metaphysics of destructive violence in any manner, shape, or form, which is what, in a secular uh, interpretation, I tried to do with the book Mind War, where I was trying to, without using religious terminology in any way, saying, look, you know, people... People are going to have conflicts of interest and purpose from time to time, but that doesn't mean that you have to demonize the other person or kill them or blow their stuff up. There are ways that you can cooperatively uh, solve these kinds of problems. And this book goes into a number of them and shows you, points you the way to do it, which is, again, amplified in Find Far, you know, the, uh, the further book that discusses that kind of thing. So Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just saying that, so in, in Mind War, in effect, you have a, a secularization of many of the principles that we learned in an in individualistic sense in Temple of Set Initiation. The one thing that Mind War doesn't get into is the personal consciousness of this, which is what Mindstar is all about. And the reason Mind War didn't get into it is because it, it was already... Um, what you might call a big bite, you know, for the reader to take to understand these mm-hmm. things. And I didn't want to scare everybody off completely by saying, while we're at it, let's straighten you out about the human soul. You know, <laughs> I took another book. And you really, you can, you can solve international conflict problems without worrying about the souls of the peoples involved, as long as you address the physical machinery or what I call the brain architecture functions of their... Um, thought processes. So that was what Mind War is all about. And it, I, you know, I, I modernized it a little bit more in 2016. It was originally published 2013. So I tidied it up a little bit by 2016, but it still is. I'd, I'd still um, run it up the flagpole and salute it as a very sound and strong piece of work, which if we can just get a few more people to pay attention to it and actualize it will help to reduce the level of misery that we see surrounding us on the planet. <laughs> Which is something we definitely all need. And you've been uh, putting out so many books recently that it's, it's, uh, it's just really exciting. There was a time in my life where I could boast that I've read everything that Dr. Quito has written, but now uh, today I have to say I'm, uh, I'm scrambling to keep up with you. Um, but could you talk well, a little bit about? Has, yeah, part of that has to do with the breakdown of my physical body, uh, because okay. in uh, uh, about uh, two years ago, I was diagnosed with uh, colon cancer, and I had to have a major operation to take out half of it, and then uh, about a year after that, another major operation to take out the other half. So I'm not even a semicolon anymore. Uh, <laughs> but. Uh, 
During that time, I've been more horizontal than vertical. And during that horizontality, um, I said, well, as long as I'm lying around here, uh, I might as well um, do something that I've backburnered for some years now, which is writing up, so to speak, everything that I've learned. Because as you go through the adventure of existence and the adventure through life, you pick up a lot of information and a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge on the way. And of course, you also bang your nose into a lot of walls. And the sum total is that you learn a lot of stuff. So there comes a point, um, and it's a good thing that, that, I, that I waited until fairly late in my time span here to write this stuff up because it gives you the maximum opportunity to make mistakes and also to gather good information. So you get to a fairly senior point and you say, okay, I'm now at a point where I'm reasonably smart enough and I've learned enough where it uh, will be useful for me to write this down and not figure that I'm missing a lot of stuff that I haven't learned yet. Uh, and it's also a good thing if I write these things down in book form as opposed to croaking and requiring people to get them out of me by seance later on. <laughs> That's so very considerate of you. Stuff up now. And along the way, in addition to what you might call these um, hard philosophy books, I'm having a little fun along the way with some imaginative and creative stories. So some of my books are, are creative ventures that are sort of fun and entertainment reading, and, and others are the more serious initiatory philosophy kind of things. So um, could you talk a little bit about Ode to Esme, the memoir sure. of Captain Nemo? That's your newest one, right? Yeah. Um, of the, you might call the entertainment-type books, um, uh, which isn't to say that they're silly. I mean, they're, they're all really quite serious. I don't think I can write anything which is completely silly. Um, but uh, I've written uh, books like Morlandale, which is a perspective on... Tolkien's universe, uh, The Silmarillion and Lord of the Rings from the vantage point of Melkor and Sauron. I've also um, written a, a very extensive um, parody of uh, Star Wars called uh, Fire Force. I've, and uh, these are all available in book form uh, through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and others. And Incidentally, the easiest way to find all this stuff is just to go on Amazon Type in Michael Aquino as an author's name, and it'll take you to my author's page, and then you'll see all this stuff in a big list. So then you can go chase down any individual book that you might be interested in. So absolutely, and we're gonna we're gonna link to all of that too in the show notes for this. Okay, so that's the that's the simplest way to find this without re trying to remember any individual book name is just go to my Amazon author's page, and the whole bunch of stuff you know is right there. So. In the case of Ode to Esme, um, this is sort of, again, a, uh, a, a sort of a, a lifelong old experience of mine, which goes back to 1954 when I was eight years old, and I saw Walt Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea movie. Well, I was blown away by it. You know, not only was I fascinated with it, I was so fascinated with it that that same year I went back into the theater and saw it 29 more times. Uh, in those days, you had to go into a theater, see a movie. You couldn't just dial it up on uh, YouTube or something. 
uh, or download it as a DVD, you had to physically go see it. So I went and physically saw it 29 more times. By then, I pretty much had it digested and memorized. So uh, I was utterly fascinated with the movie in its entirety. It took me a while to figure out exactly why, but of course, it had to do with the personality of Captain Nemo, who was very much a sort of a pre-Darth Vader. You know, he was a uh, a Nietzschean kind of character who, as he put it, um, was not a civilized man. He was outside of society, outside of civilization, and he was an independent actor against his concept of the objective universe, much as Darth Vader would later be with regard to his, or Melkor or Sauron would be, you know, in the case of the Morlandale. So I noticed uh, in the um, last few years that there were a couple of other attempts to create biographies or autobiographies of Captain Nemo, and they were well-intentioned, but by fairly ordinary minds that uh, created fairly ordinary histories and didn't really get into the, into the, what you might call the super psychology of this individual who became Captain Nemo. Like Darth Vader, you know, there is a there is something about these kinds of personalities that goes way outside the norm where they become independent actors uh, against the entirety of the universe around them. And that's what makes them fascinating, a little bit like the Satan of Paradise Lost <clears throat> that we were talking about earlier. So when uh, I had finished with Fine Far, and I said, well, okay, I'm sort of in the mood to do another interesting, you know, uh, uh, adventure book. I said, well, I think maybe I'll see what what Captain Nemo's early history might be like because I have a feeling I can bring it out in some different ways than the other two people who've tried amateur autobiographies. And that was, the result was Ode to Esme, which is uh, this one. And of course, anybody who looks at it, uh, it's in, in either Kindle form as an e-book or in physical form as a paperback, we'll see that it has its own interesting history as to how this manuscript was discovered, and uh, it's presented as, as a uh, photo facsimile of his original manuscript, so you can see his own handwriting there, so to speak, of, uh, of his own adventures uh, through history. And, uh, and since I was having fun with it, he also bumps into some other interesting people along the way, such as Ayesha, she who must be obeyed, uh, who saves his ass in Egypt when he's going through there, and also um, a uh, Chinese friend of his who not only helps him to fund and build the Nautilus originally, uh, since he's a prince of the first rank of the uh, Qing dynasty, but also uh, later develops an alter ego as... Uh, what would be known in, in Western circles as the insidious Dr. Fu Manchu. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, the, there, there are some other interesting things, that since the Nautilus is actually constructed as a private project in the Clyde shipyards of Scotland and is originally uh, tested on the surface in Loch Long, well, um, this takes place, you know, in the... Uh, 1850s uh, when it's being built 
and they need to do some high speed and some sur subsurface testing of it as well. So they look around for the biggest lock that they can find in Scotland to do this as a good testing ground for these high speed and submerged tests. And they find this place called Loch Ness. So for several months, they run some tests up there, which uh, gives birth to the local populace saying, oh my God, there's a monster that exists out there in the loch. And uh, we've seen it, you know, it's got big eyes and, and uh, is running around there, particularly at night. So <laughs> it turns out that uh, the test drives of the Nautilus give birth to the legend of the Loch Ness Monster. So if your leg hasn't been pulled enough by now, <laughs> you'll find a lot of fun stuff as you read through this, uh, as you read through this story. But it takes you up uh, and explains how Captain Nemo became Captain Nemo. Wow, that's exciting. I can't wait to read it. So uh, this also reminds me, and when I read um, Fire Force, I think the original version was a manuscript called The Dark Side. Uh -huh. And in that you had um, the idea of uh, James Mason playing Darth Vader, the pre-scarred pre James Mason playing Darth sure. Vader. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes, and again, it, it sort of is a, you might say, the flip side of the analogy that, uh, that I was referring to a moment ago, where you've got a Nietzschean character. You know, you've got a, a, an, an, a, an alien to the existing natural universe that's acting upon it, beyond good and evil, you know, in the Nietzschean sense, that is a, an, a creator and an arbiter of his, of his own sense of morality and good and evil, which is exactly what makes him so fascinating, and which all began when you were, you know, when you were asking me earlier about the Diabolican. This goes all the way back to, of course, the fascination that we have with Satan in Paradise Lost, you know, that his sin was not one of good and evil, it was one of separateness. And all these mm -hmm. are heroic uh, characters because uh, of their separation from the natural order of things. Mm -hmm. As I said at the end of uh, um, uh, uh, of the end, or I guess in perhaps my introduction, you know, to the Marlindale, um, who cares what happened in Middle-earth, you know, after Sauron? Nobody, because we know it was bound to be dull. <laughs> Absolutely. So I have to ask that, have you seen, with all these retellings and, 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 and Star Wars themes and Darth Vader themes, you've seen the, the Star Wars prequel films? No, I never bothered with them. Um, I was very disappointed in the second and third original Star Wars movies, which I thought uh, abandoned the, the genius of the first movie. And I never bothered with the, uh, the prequel movies, nor did I bother with the, uh, this recent Disney uh, sort of a, uh, a desperate remake of the original Star Wars film, which became well, that's fine. sort of a formula let's, thing. Let, right. Well, let's talk about uh, Empire Strikes Back and uh, Return of the Jedi. How do you feel about what they did with Darth Vader in those movies? Oh, uh, well, if, as I explained in my introduction to Fire Force, I thought it was an abandonment of the original vision because in the first movie, he was a mysterious um, anti-heroic character, very much like a Satan who had um, a, a set of, of governing principles and interests that were far 
alien to anything and anybody around him. He was a mystery, you know, he was a wizard. He was a little bit like Gandalf, you know, he was uh, exactly who and what he was, was um, this exciting unknown thing that you had to be, you had to have his kind of mind itself to begin to understand it. Otherwise he was completely uh, above and beyond your ability to make any sense of it. Well, in the second and third movies, uh, first of all, they, they reduced it to a Freudian father-son love thing, you know, in the second movie. And in the third movie, it became sort of a uh, panda bear goof-off, you know, with the Ewoks and all that. And uh, Darth Vader got sort of born again to Christianity at the end of it. And it just made me hold my uh, head in my hands and say, oh, my God, I can't believe that George Lucas bleeped this up, you know, as bad as that. But that's, I guess, in the direction in which audiences felt most comfortable. You know, they had to have, they had to have this Nietzschean character destroyed or at least brought down to normal human slobbiness. They certainly couldn't have him win out in his present uh, personality, um, although I certainly did that in Fire Force because there's no apology whatever to Darth Vader's character in Fire Force, whatever. If anything, it's, it's magnified all the more there. And at the end of um, Walt Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, it was necessary to kill Captain Nemo. Uh, for the same reasons, you know, that here you have somebody who's a Nietzschean Superman outside of society, and that simply isn't acceptable to um, slob audiences who uh, can't accept that kind of thing. They, they, they need to see that kind of thing get its comeuppance, so to speak, and be brought down to heal like a good doggy along with the rest of us. And if you can't if you can't have them be born again like Darth Vader at the end of um, Return of the Jedi, then you need to kill them off. Right. At the end of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Now, of course, Walt Disney killed him off at the end of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, Jules Verne didn't. He continued him into his sequel called The Mysterious Island, but it still left a lot of very vague, uh, unanswered questions about Nemo, which is what I get into in Odesme. Ah, excellent. You will learn all there is to know about Captain Nemo and why he is what he is and why he does what he does, you know, in uh, Odesme. You know, I I also enjoy, of course, when I write these things, I'm not just simply writing fiction out out of clear blue sky because I integrate these things intensely with actual history, places, and events at the time. So all of the international situations, wars, incidents, personalities that you see, whether it's the Dowager Empress of of the Manchu dynasty who is involved in this, um, or even uh, the fact that, you know, most people don't know where um, the Nautilus got its name. It got its name from a very real incident, which was that Robert Fulton, the same guy who, you know, developed the steamship over here and the torpedo and things like that, Robert Fulton was passionately interested in developing a submarine. And he couldn't get funding for his crazy idea here in the United States, um, which was just this, uh, um, had just been born, because this was around the year 1800. Um, Mm -hmm. So he went to Britain to see if he could interest the Royal Navy in funding him. 
and they weren't interested. So he went to France, and he got a grant from the uh, French Republic, which was the pre-Napoleonic Republic at that time, to develop a small submarine uh, at the shipyards of Rouen, uh, which he named the Nautilus. And at that time, uh, the the, uh, first consul of the Republic uh, fell by the name of Napoleon Bonaparte, who would later go on to become Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, came down and looked at it and decided that it was uh, not feasible for something that he wanted to spend a lot of money on. So he canceled the project. And the Nautilus, that was the end of Nautilus number one. Fulton developed plans for a much bigger and fancier Nautilus number two. And since France wasn't interested, he went back to England. And this time the Royal Navy, who had noticed that he had been bankrolled for a while by the French government, which they were very nervous about, uh, gave him several hundred uh, pounds retainer to develop Nautilus number two uh, for them. But they weren't really that interested as much as they were interested in keeping him from going back to France because they didn't know how dangerous that could be. Uh, A few years later, the Battle of Trafalgar occurred in which the British stomped the French Navy. And after that, they didn't really worry about the French Navy anymore, which meant they had no particular interest in Robert Fulton. So they yanked his funding again. And Robert Fulton went back to the United States and gave up any further attempts to create the Nautilus. And at that time, he just simply took all of his plans for Nautilus number two and left them with the U.S. consul in in London. And this is all historical fact that you'll see brought out in this book. So when um, the uh, young Captain Nemo and his uh, Chinese friend are becoming interested in the creation of an experimental submarine up there in Scotland. Uh, They discover that these plans exist and that are sitting down in the American consulate in London, and they uh, find a nautical engineer to get them and develop them further, and that's how the Nautilus gets its name and also uh, gets a jump start as far as its um, creation is concerned. So this isn't imagination. This is all actual history that I don't think anybody really knows. No, I think you're right. That's amazing. And so, all through um, this book, you'll find bits and pieces of actual history, and I kind of leave it up to the reader to separate the history from the fiction as a kind of a challenge. I think that's one of your great talents in, in all of your fictional books is the way you weave in these elements of truth and fact and history into it. It just... Uh, makes it absolutely, absolutely amazing. And sometimes the strangest stuff turns out to be true. Right. (laughs) In a book like uh, We Break the Sword, which has a lot of very peculiar kinds of uh, uh, elements in it from what you might loosely call Nazi occultism, a lot of this is is straightforward fact that I got from going through the uh, microfilmed records of the Ananerba SS that are all sitting covered with dust in the National Archives building in Washington, D.C. When I discovered these things in the 1980s, I was probably one of the first people to even just find them, much less look through them, uh, judging from all the layers of dust you know, that was all over all those microfilm cases that I got. And I think I blew out my eyeballs by using those lousy microfilm 
readers that they had at the time to go through all this, you know, in the National Archives. But it's all there, you know. I think when we when we uh, got all this stuff at the end of World War II, they probably assigned some PFC to microfilm all this weird German stuff, and then they just stashed it in the National Archives without anybody bothering to look through it. Well, I finally did. So you'll read up on a lot of that, you know, when you go through a book like uh, We Break the Sword. Excellent. So, Michael, I have one final question for you. Mm-hmm. Do you think the left-hand path can ever become a mass movement? I hope it doesn't, uh, because one of the problems that we have, you know, that we ran into with the Temple of Set is what happens when you take somebody who isn't intellectually or emotionally able to handle this amount of um, personal discretionary freedom and creativity. And we sometimes refer to that as the id monster phenomenon, and we ref- and we refer people as long as we're giving movie analogies to the movie Forbidden Planet, where you have a human being, in this case Dr. Morbius, whose intelligence is artificially expanded. There, it's done through a machine, but it's much the same kind of thing as we do through initiation. And the result is that, in addition to giving him a lot of positive intelligence that also magnifies the destructive and animalistic primitive aspects of his personality, creating this um, monster that wreaks so much destruction throughout the film. So we've had something analogous to that in uh, initiation, that when you take people who come out of a, of a largely controlled environment, such as conventional society, and you break them completely free of it, and you take them beyond good and evil, you know, above good and evil, to where they become responsible for their own moral codes and ethics. If you're a Paul McAtee or a Michael Aquino or a Don Webb or another good person, you can handle this kind of thing, and you can do um, very good things as a consequence of it. But if you are... um, if you're not that well-balanced or you're not that intelligent and you get this kind of a license, the result can be pretty horrendous. And you get id monsters. So the initiatory system of the Temple of Set is definitely not something that I would advertise for everybody. And indeed, the Temple of Set has become very selective over the years and restrictive. And it's not because we're um, trying to puff ourselves up or be cute about it. Uh, It's just because we don't want to see people hurt themselves uh, in the way that they would if we gave them a loaded gun. We only want to um, allow people on this course uh, a little bit like the uh, initial episode of Kung Fu where you had a whole bunch of kids standing out in the rain, you know, in front of the Shaolin uh, Monastery, and gradually they all lost interest and went away except one, the young Cain, who uh, survived and was taken in and educated into being uh, the monk in the start of that original Kung Fu series. So they had their own way of uh, being selective, and incidentally you'll see the Shaolin Monastery playing a part in Captain Nemo's history too. (laughs) But uh, what you need, I think, when you look out at society right now, Um, the existing religious choices that are out there are a mess. They're awful. 
I can't think of one, you know, that is decent that I would refer somebody to and say, maybe you're not SETIAN caliber, but, you know, maybe you should look into this instead. Uh, either they're stupid, or in some cases they're malignant and self-destructive and masochistic and sadistic, and this doesn't even get into things like their sexual dimensions because most of them are really screwed up sexually and dump on, uh, you know, on, on particularly on women. If, if men aren't punishing themselves enough, they punish women for being women three or four times as much. Yep. Uh, and uh, it's just a mess. It's a horrible thing. It's occurred to me to construct, which I guess I could do, I could construct a... Uh, a positive social religion in much the way that just people like John Locke speculated on one. The only problem is is that uh, a little bit like mind war, you know, you can lead a horse to water, you can't necessarily make him drink. So I could design a very good mass religion that people could use to basically make their lives better and more comfortable and not get hurt. Um, I don't know that, you know, that that's what people would want because when people go to these religions, it's usually because they're scared into them. Uh, you know, they're scared because of their fear of death, their fear of punishment, um, because their fear of discrimination in society or of being ostracized or murdered, you know, if they don't obey or participate in it. It's a very negative environment. It isn't as though we're talking about people who have the option to go out and buy different automobiles, you know. Uh, the existing mainstream religions are are extremely punitive and extremely destructive and uh, really vicious things. You know, despite the picture that they painted themselves as as being well, they're all very violent and very intolerant of, yeah. of uh, anything else. So if I else, come up with a nice so. alternative, uh, it might be appealing, but I just don't know that. Um, to the extent that it became at all known as a as a positive alternative, it might attract a lot of um, discrimination and antipathy from the existing uh, mainline religions. You know, if they thought it was a threat, um, but it also um, I don't I don't know that that many people, as I said, would uh, look at it from a positive motivational standpoint because they're accustomed to looking at religions as threats. And this one, of course, would have no threat aspect to it. So a lot of people would be somewhat confused as to whether or not right. it's they should be interested in. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, Alistair Crowley once said that every man must cut his own way through the jungle. And that's the, at, at the same time, that's the great thing, but it's also the scary thing because a lot of people... Yeah aren't really prepared for that responsibility. Lester Crowley was another one of these people who had his own system, and he really designed it for himself. And he knew what he was doing and what he was expecting from it, and he accomplished exactly what he wanted to with it. But uh, he did not intend it, he did not design it as a mechanism for other people to be able to use it very effectively, which is why you have a number of self-professed Thelemic organizations that have all basically fucked up, if you'll pardon my French, because they're, they come in, they imitate his stuff, they try to behave as though they are imitation Aleister Crowley's, and they just make a mess of it and make themselves look silly. 
and they have not a, they don't have any idea, you know, what he was talking about or why or what his illusions were all about. Um, people, people today who join the Church of Satan organization all want to be imitation Anton LaVey's, but they haven't the slightest idea what Anton LaVey was all about, and they just make themselves look silly if they cut their hair off, grow goatees, and uh, try and prance around uh, pretending to be Anton LaVey's. So there are there there are. You know, that's why we spend so much time in the Temple of Set uh, saying to everybody, look, this is a toolbox. This isn't a, an imitation of anybody thing. It isn't a hero worship thing. It isn't an imitate, imitate anybody thing. Uh, this is a, a toolbox of devices and experiences that you, can, that you can use on your own quest and your own personal adventure, but it is is and must necessarily be your own unique experience and your own adventure, and that's the only way it's going to be any value to you. Absolutely. Very well said. Well, Michael, do you have uh, any, any final thoughts for our listeners tonight? Oh, just that we have taken a lot of very big bites out of a lot of um, big topics here, and the phrase comes to mind, Migo, you know, my eyes glaze over. So, uh, some of your listeners may have experienced Migo during part of this. So my my comment is, we've I think you and I have done as valiant a job as we can of trying to make these things coherent. But we're dealing with a lot of big concepts and topics here. And uh, for my pains, you know, this is what I've tried to address address in more detail in my various books. So I would say, if you've heard something tonight that you're interested in getting into or you really want to look into it and see if um, if I, I seem to have my act together on this I'd uh, I'd do what I suggested earlier you know go to Amazon uh, do an author select for Michael Aquino and see a listing of my current books there and if you see a book that has a brief description of interest in any one of these areas just simply click on it go to its page look at its detailed description, and then you can also use the what they call the look inside feature to uh, bring up on your screen uh, a selection of some of the early pages of the book so you get a better idea of its table of contents, introduction, and what it's all about. And that will give you uh, a little bit more information to decide if you want to go further into this particular topic. So that's what I would leave as a takeaway point that if we've hit on anything that interests you, go to Amazon, go to that author's page and take a look, and then you can find some um, background material that will open this up. And usually, particularly with my factually-based books, I footnote to beat the band. I, I usually include a pretty heavyweight bibliography. So in addition to the index and the footnoting and the bibliography, you'll find even more references where you can go even further back to my primary sources if you really want to get into a particular uh, subject. So that would be, I guess, my, my most useful takeaway for your audience. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for taking the time to speak with us and share your perspectives on things. And to all of our listeners, I'm telling you, you need to go to Amazon. You need to get all of Dr. Aquino's books. You need to read them all. 
They will make you a smarter person. They'll make you a happier person. And they just might help you live forever. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me. And for anybody who does take a whirl through my books, I hope you enjoy the reading experience and uh, find them helpful to your personal adventure, which is really what this is all about. All right. Thanks, Michael. And keep fighting the good fight. I'll work on it. Thank you, Paul. Well, there you have it. Michael Aquino, a soldier to some, a philosopher to others. For others still, he will always be the second great beast from the book of Revelations, who spoke like a lamb and brought down holy fire from the sky. If you resonated with any of this, please pass along the podcast to others. Talk about it. Tweet about it. Post it on Facebook. Every action you take in this regard helps spread the seeds of the black flame. If you want to know more about the Temple of Set, just visit www.kefir.org. And Kefir is spelled X-E-P-E-R. If you want to know more about the esoteric order of Beelzebub, the mysterious group that brings you this cutting-edge podcast, check out www.ibeelzebub.com and sign up for our mailing list there to keep up with news about this podcast and other related happenings. We also have a new Facebook group called Damonosophy, where you can discuss ideas from the show and give suggestions. Maybe some of the ideas will even get used on the show. So there's a co-creational thing we're promoting there, an act of voluntary reciprocal exchange in accordance with will. So go join it, participate, exchange, and grow stronger with knowledge of self. For the next episode, I'm hoping to have Dr. Lloyd Keene join us. And for those who don't know, Dr. Keene is a priest in the Temple of Set and an author of a new book called Black Horizons Perspectives, in which he outlines four perspectives on the left-hand path and how these can be applied to the work of psychocentric initiation. If you're in Ottawa, Canada by any chance in the very near future, you can see Dr. Keene speaking live and in person at Flambeau Noir, Left Hand Path Conference, which is taking place April 28th through the 30th. And for more information on that, you can visit www.flambeaunoir.com. They're also featuring other great writers and occult personalities like Jeremy Crow and Uncle Setnacht himself. That's right, the great Don Webb. And with that, my friends and fellow daemons, as the curtain of silence once more descends, I wish you independence to stand strong, inspiration to rewrite the rules, and courage to stand by the truth. And until next time, Keep the black fires burning.